Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer and episode 26 of the Speaking Club podcast. My guest today has rowed across an ocean, climbed Everest and cycled round the world. I've done stuff. I've rowed across a kitchen table, reached the summit of my abilities and driven my partner round the bend. It's not that different, is it? I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hey! Some people you meet leave a lasting impression and James Ketchell has done that with me. Despite having achieved some amazing feats, he is such a humble guy. And even though he's clearly driven and focused, there's an infectious playfulness about him that I'm sure must charm everyone he meets. I could have talked to him for hours about the things he's done and seen on his adventures and how he managed to stay the course when, you know, things might have seemed at times just insurmountable. I did ask him lots of questions and this is a slightly longer episode than normal, but I am sure that it will leave you wanting more. Over to Captain Ketch. So I feel like today is the closest I'm going to get to talking to a real life superhero. And although he can't leap tall buildings in a single bound, although you never know, I'll ask him. Um, my guest today has achieved some amazing feats. Welcome to the show, James Ketchell. Oh, good man. That was probably the most amazing intro I've ever had. Thank you. Um, very kind of you. So thank, thank you very much. I'm not that, that great, but we'll, we'll, I'll <laughs> well, share some stories with you. <laughs> good. good. Uh, modesty is another great quality. So there, uh, there you go. Very kind. Um, Cool, James. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Um, oh, thanks for having me. I mean, there's a lot I want to ask you about, and the sort of overarching theme of this month's uh, podcasting is around resilience and building resilience, and and I'm getting people on the show that have had to tap into that in their lives in order to achieve success, and, and you're one of those people. But I wanted to start with your early life. Um, I know that there was something that happened to you which kind of started you on your journey but could you take us through that and also whether there were any signs early on maybe in your childhood or something that you'd go on to be the adventurer that you are today yeah that's interesting I didn't really set out to do any of this it all all kind of happened by accident I mean really going back when I was very young when I was a little boy I was actually I didn't really have a great deal of confidence to be honest um I was quite a quiet boy uh, I'd, I'd always go out and, and build camps and make campfires and he seemed to be getting into some kind of mischief I'd always be getting told off for something but I was a good boy I wasn't a bad boy um and yeah as I got grew a little bit older I got I, I found motorbikes I, I decided that I loved motorbikes and when I was working in my early 20s, <clears throat> I, I bought a race bike and started racing bikes and, uh, and so I never looked back from there really. That was something that I really enjoyed. I wasn't quite good enough to be a professional, uh, but I wasn't too bad. The standard of motorcycle racing in the UK is probably the highest standard, I would say, anywhere in the world. But I was racing most weekends. I was an amateur. I had a fairly good job at the time and I was 
pretty much sort of funding it mostly myself. And uh, yeah, I then had an accident and, um, and that was that really. I sort of fell into a, a completely different life. <laughs> So what, what were you doing at the time for your job? I was working as an, I talked my way into uh, an account management role, which is basically a sales role for a big American IT firm. Um, it was a good job. You know, I worked with some good people, but I didn't really enjoy it. I didn't really, I wasn't really keen on the corporate world. Uh, the, some of the types of people that are in it, the way some people behave in order to get where they want to go. It's not, 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 not really for me. So, so you had the bike accident. How bad was that accident? What, what happened? Was that while you were racing? Yeah, well, I mean, basically what happened is I accelerated. I was accelerating out of a corner and the bike was lent over. Now, the idea is when you, when you accelerate off, you, you, you have to come out the corner and stand the bike up and then you can really open the throttle up and, and away you go. They're, they're pretty quick. I mean, I raced the Kawasaki ZX6 Ninja. Uh, it would, it would, top speed was about 174 mile an hour wow. and it would get there quickly. Now, as I, I was in second place, actually, I was, I was chasing a guy. And as I came out of the corner, um, basically, I just put a little bit too much throttle down. I was a bit too eager. And the rear wheel span up. So the back of the bike came around on me. And it threw me over the top of the handlebars. Oh um, so, yeah, I mean, it was a bit of a problem. I mean, when the human body hits concrete at just over 100 miles an hour, you know, I mean, it, it tends to be problematic. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just it was funny because you get, and I, I've said this loads of times when I give my talks and stuff, you get this idea that, that time just slows down because I remember flying through the air looking back at the bike. And obviously time doesn't slow down. It's your, your senses, they're, they're massively heightened. That's why anyone who's been in a car crash or had an accident, it will always feel like it's happening in slow motion, that, that last bit. Your, your, your brain goes into like a super mode and becomes super sensitive. Um, yeah, I just remember hitting, I was flying through the air looking back at the bike thing and I just thought, well, this is going to hurt. <laughs> and, then, and then I hit the deck hard and, and, it, and it knocked me out. And then I sort of came to at the, came to the side and a doctor was there within probably within seconds. And I remember he said to me, you know, whatever you do, don't look down. And I, of course, what do you do when you're told not to do something? I looked down and my right ankle would, I'd snapped it and it was, um, it was as 180 degrees behind me for, that morning I'd put a white sock on um, and the doctor slid my boot off very gently and I, I had an open fracture so the skin had split and the bone had come through uh -huh. so it was bleeding heavily so my white sock was like red dripping with blood oh, and no. I said to the guy oh have you got a, a camera or a phone would make a great picture wouldn't it and he was like stop being so silly <laughs> and the next thing I know um he started injecting morphine into me, which is this like incredible drug. You just pain disappears quite quickly, actually. But but adrenaline, ad the best painkiller on the planet is adrenaline. That that will stop any pain. But as soon as the adrenaline wears off, then yeah, you're gonna need a pretty hefty dose of morphine. Uh, and then the next thing I know, I woke up in hospital and I've broken my legs, I've broken my arm, my hand. That was not really a problem. But what was a problem was my ankle. I'd completely destroyed my, my ankle very bad, broke it in, into lots of bits. And that was a big problem. Um, how long did it, I mean, was that, how long did it take you to recover from that, that the ankle? It took about four months to be able to sort of hobble around on crutches. But it took about two years to actually make... Um, a full recovery, well, the best recovery that I was ever going to make. 
Yeah. I was quite lucky actually because the NHS, I didn't know this, but the NHS have a policy that it takes two surgeons to approve an amputation, whether they chop your arm or leg off. And when I came in, two of the surgeons were sort of umming and ahhing, do we actually just cut this guy's lower right leg off? Because I, they were not sure whether they'd be able to effectively bolt my foot back. So they weren't really sure whether they could save it. And it was just luck. There was another very senior surgeon, an orthopedic surgeon, who worked out of that hospital. But he was on holiday that day, but he just so happened to be at home. So the two surgeons that were working on me called him. And he actually, on his day off, he came in. And uh, there's three of them. They all bolted my uh, ankle back together and effectively saved it. So I was, wow. I was very lucky. Actually, there's a really funny story about that guy because um, I, I didn't realize, but... Um, uh, back in 2016, I was asked to give a talk at the Royal Orthopaedic Society. Uh-huh. Uh, big, big talk. It's like 500, 600 people in the audience. So well, it's not big, but yes, medium-sized audience. And it, there, there he was. Uh, uh, the guy that had bolted me back together oh, wow. was in the audience. And actually, the the chap who was um, like emceeing the event actually brought him out on stage. And uh, all the fellow surgeons actually uh, gave him like, a round of applause because there was, and it must have been quite good for him to think because he probably doesn't know what happens to most people that they bolt back together. Yeah. But I, I guess the fact that this guy bolted me back together and then I was able to go on and do a few things, he was quite pleased about that. <laughs> a, few, a few things. <laughs> so, yeah. Understatement is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so where where are we on this timeline? So, what year was it you had the accident? Uh, oh goodness, um, I think it might have been two thousand and seven. So it's okay. a little while ago now. Yeah, yeah. So you so you were two years just to get back to presumably not full. Um, yeah, spring, not full, not back to where you were before well, you had the accident. Uh, yeah, I mean, basically, my ankle was as good as it was going to be, uh, mm-hmm. but I don't have very good movement in my right sort of foot ankle as such. So running i can't run i can walk but i can't run so what were you doing during that two years you were sort of recovering were you still well, working at the same yeah, place or? yeah i was it didn't take me long i went back to work um as soon as i got out of hospital um and and they were really supportive actually really supportive i went back into work on crutches and everyone was was so accommodating to me so good to me but i said ah don't worry you don't have to give me any special treatment I did park closer to the, uh, <laughs> the door, but that's about it, really. Um, yeah, and then like, I've always had this dream to sort of, I, I just felt like I needed something to aim for. Yeah. Um, and that's when I decided that I was going to try and row across the Atlantic. Cause and had you been a rower before this? Or? No, never at all. You know, ever since I was a young boy, I've had a dream to try and row a boat across the Atlantic. So ocean. where did that come from? What sparked that idea? Yeah, probably used to watch too much Tintin, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but I, 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 I'd, I'd always been into sort of going off on little adventures and things. But I wasn't a rower. But actually, what people don't realise that rowing across an ocean has got nothing to do with rowing. That is the easiest part. You just sit on the seat and you pull the oars. There's nothing to it. It's so, so simple. You know, if you're not a good rower, well, you've got 3,000 miles to learn. You're going to be fairly good by the end of it. Um, it was really more the adventure. It was the adventure of being out there and the journey 
that that really appealed to me um so, so you have I, the idea yeah and, and then I, so how does that come to to become a reality i mean what, what you, once you've got the idea what happened next how did you get it to be well, you know, to, to happen here's the situation i went out and found i think I never really pursued it initially because I was scared of what other people would think of me or didn't know whether I could do it. And I was kind of worried about other people's opinions. And I'll tell you something, that's the worst thing that you could ever, don't ever, ever worry about what someone else thinks of you. And I, I went out and I found a guy that, because when I did it, there was, it wasn't very mainstream. Mm -hmm. Whereas now rowing across the Atlantic is a race every year and it's, it's really, it always be a marvelous achievement, but it's much more popular now. Everyone knows someone who's rowed across an ocean and I went out, there was not many people that had done it at the, the time. So I went out and I found someone that, that rode solo across the Atlantic and I met up with him and he was so helpful. Um, actually I was kind of blown away really. And then I went and found someone else who'd rode across so I went and I found people that knew what they were talking about or were in a position to, to give me good advice. And it was very, very interesting. The people that were qualified to give me an opinion on it were all extremely positive. Yet the people who had no idea what they were talking about, never set foot in a boat, were very, very quick to tell me. It's funny because all of a sudden they, they were an expert on ocean rowing. They told me that I would die. They told me it was a very silly thing to do. Uh, they told me that I should grow up. Uh, not everyone, but a few people did. And I'll tell you something, and I tell this to kids, you know, be very selective who you listen to and who you take advice from. Take advice from people who've done what you want to do. Um, because there's a lot of people out there who don't know anything, but claim they know everything and will tell you that ah, that's no good. The, the dream was, shatterers yeah, was, like, there, there are a lot of that and that, if i'm honest with you they're well-meaning people they don't mean to be negative they don't mean to shatter your dream they just don't really know what they're talking about and you have to be careful because opinions if you're if you're if you're listening to an opinion from someone who, who really knows what they're talking about then it's 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 it's, it's worth something but an opinion from someone who does know nothing at all uh, is not really is not of any value to you and will only railroad you off your goal. I've learned that. So you didn't listen to them clearly. Well, I don't know what it was. Like, there was just something inside me that that kind of just naturally blocked that out. And I only I only really focused and listened to uh, to the people that I kind of wanted to listen to. I suppose I was a bit selective in that I pretty much already might made my decision that I was going to do this. Um, so it was as soon as someone said something negative or something I didn't want to hear, if I'm honest, I just blocked it out. Okay, um, cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, it was. And what did these guys say to you? So did they, were they a bit taken aback by the fact you wanted to do it or were they yeah, like, they were yeah, there's, no reason. There's, there's, there's absolutely no reason. And they, they confirmed everything that I thought was probably the case. They said, don't worry about the fact that you haven't rowed. That's the easiest part. The hardest part is going to be fundraising, getting all the money together because you know, I didn't really, I, I mean, you know, I had a little bit of money, but I didn't have enough money to pay for the whole thing on my own. You know, my parents, I'm, I can't, my parents don't have any money. So I couldn't turn around to them and say, oh, can you write me a check out? I want to go off and play for a few months. So I ha I ha if I wanted to do this, I absolutely had to make it happen myself.
And how did you do that, James? Broke it all down. The only way you can do something like that is to break it down into manageable, what I call pillars. Uh-huh. So you've got, you've got a sort of the, the, the financial sort of sponsorship pillar of the project, if you like. And that is, you've got to go out there and you've got to find the money to do this. So hence, you need to get sponsors. So they're going to get, uh, I mean, I could talk to you for hours about just that as a subject, but they're going to get certain things back in return for you, for, for giving you money. So, you know, you've got to put, a pro- where I came from a sales background, that really helped me. You need to put a proposal together and just keep it simple. And I talk about four, four, the four W's, and that is what you're doing, why you're doing it, why you're doing it is the most important thing. And then the third one is, is what is it that you can do? So what can I do for a sponsor? And then the last one is what do I want? Mm-hmm. So finish with how much money you need. And, and I put a proposal together like that. And I just, I literally, I kid you not, I emailed thousands and thousands of people and just played a numbers game because I knew that's what you had to do. And in the end, I actually did pick up funding. I got sponsored by Speedo, funnily enough. Oh, wow. Uh, I put some of my own money into the project, what I could. And then the rest of it, I did manage to get sponsored. But they were so right. It was the hardest part of this, this whole project was actually day in, day out, when it's just so demoralizing. You're not really... I mean, people generally don't even bother replying. Uh, and... But just not worrying on the outcome. Just you have to just think of the task in hand. So like each day I would, and I did this actually whilst working a full-time job. Like in my lunch break, I'd send emails out. Um, at home, I'd quite often stay up till two o'clock in the morning sending out emails, and then I'd be up working the next day. And that's really kind of what it takes. To actually, it's not that difficult. I didn't do anything special. You just you know, when people say, well, what does it take? It, it, yeah, it, it just takes quite a lot of hard work and effort, really. And I get persistence, quite, isn't it, really? Persistence. Yeah, I get a lot of young people now approach me saying that they, they want to raise money to do this or that, which is great, and I always try and help people. And then I say, well, well tell me, you know, who have you spoken to? Oh, I've only spoken to 10 people. And it's like, mate, come back once you, you've spoken to a 1,000. <laughs> And then I'll help you if you're still not getting anywhere. That, that, that's kind of what it takes, really. And how long did it take? You know, what was the period of time before you, you found the sponsorship? Was it, did it take 12 months, six months? What, what did it take? Came in, it came in varying degrees. I found some small sponsors, so people who wanted to put a few hundred quid in here and there. And I found a, I found a company that wanted to put a thousand pounds in and a few bits and bobs. That all came through quite quickly. Um, but the larger stuff took, took quite a bit longer. That took, it took me about six months before I really started to see any significant, um, progress. Um, yeah, I mean, it does take quite a long time. And but all then, that so time you, you kept positive and you just kept you you focused to, on the, what you were doing. Yeah. You have to, because the second, the second you start to doubt yourself, that will just take over. You cannot. You cannot think, I'm not sure I can do this. Because the second you start thinking that, you've, you've lost. You're in trouble. And it's funny because I said to my mum, you know, when I set out, I said, mum, no matter what happens, I'll do this. I said, if the boat sinks, I'll get into the life raft and I'll just try and float there. I am not giving up. 
And the hardest part was getting to the start line. But I'll tell you what, that was a blessing in disguise. Because when I got out there, it made me want it. I was hungry for it. And you, you have to have that, that hunger, that drive to do something. And when I mean, people say, well, what do you mean by hunger? What do you mean by drive? When you want something bad enough, you'll get it. And this might be a ludicrous thing to say. Maybe some people may not like it. But if you were a parent and someone got your child and put a gun to your child's head and said, if you do not do this, I will shoot your child. You will make whatever they've told you to do. You'll find a way to do it. And when you want something like that, as bad as that, I am telling you now for a fact, nothing. And I mean, nothing will stop you achieving what you want to achieve. That's, 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 that's how much you've got to want something if you want if you really want it that's really cool and and just just going back for a second so you had a, you had a conversation with your mum which said mum if the boat oh sinks, yeah yeah i bet she was chuffed with that <laughs> what did she say when you said that was she worried she said don't be so silly james but uh, <laughs> yeah i it was so difficult getting to the start line that i didn't want to let the people who did support me down if that made sense and it was that that really kept me going because I'm only a human being like everyone is. So inevitably at some point you get down, you get fed up. You're, and the trouble is your brain plays tricks on you. You start talking to yourself and you start talking. You can start very quickly and very easily. You can start talking yourself out of something. And you start finding justifiable reasons to say, well, this is not really working. I've tried my best. But you've got you've to stay on top of your, your mental game, really. That's the hardest part when you're out you know like rowing across an ocean well that's what i was going to talk to you about next so you get to the start line mm. and, and you're, you're in the boat and i know you were out there for like 110 days or so and there, I'm, I'm assuming you had some you know awful things to contend with out there with whether it was that trip or another trip what was been your lowest point on your adventures and why ah uh, well out in the Atlantic, it was demoralizing because it took a long time. It usually takes about, I mean, firstly, I actually wanted to row across the Atlantic with someone else mm -hmm. as a two man, because usually you do row as a two man or a four man, but for some reason, no one would join me. So I did. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> yeah. I, I decided to do it on my own and it, it was probably the best decision that I ever made actually, to be honest, once I got out there, but where I was rowing on my own, obviously it's going to take a little bit longer. And there was a lot of areas of low pressure in 2010, it was January the 4th, 2010 is when I set off. Now, the problem that you have with areas of low pressure is it switches the wind direction. So instead of blowing me across, which the route that I rode from La Gomera to Antigua, that's, that's a trade wind route. So effectively, on a good year, you'll get blown all the way across, 100%. But the year I went across, it was the, the winds were turning and blowing, blowing me back, which was really demoralizing. There's nothing, there's nothing you can do. I mean, the best way of sort of describing what it's like out in an ocean when, you know, the winds pick up, it's, it's almost like being on a roller coaster ride. But you know, no matter how loud you scream, it doesn't, it's not going to stop. Um, and so, yeah, it took 110 days, and four hours and four minutes. Not that I was counting. But it, took, it just it took a long time. That is a long time to be out on your own. 
Uh, I didn't you, see did anyone you plan out there. to be out that long, James? Was, no. that, was that always the plan or was it something you just... No, gosh, no. I wanted to get across as quickly as possible. I was thinking in my head, maybe 60, 70 days. Oh. I had no idea it'd take nearly twice as long. Well, not quite, but, um, but it was incredible. You know, when I was out there, the things that I saw, uh, you know, the wildlife, the huge fin whales, and wow. I was hit in the face by a flying fish. They really do fly, by the way. Flying <laughs> fish. They, they do. Uh, all sorts of things happen. I was followed by a shark, by, by uh, oceanic white tip sharks. I saw, I was almost, um, I was almost hit by a, a, a huge commercial vessel, actually. That was quite scary. You think that there's nothing, you know, you think, well, how on earth could you nearly get run over with all that space? But you'll be surprised, actually, that there's a lot of commercial shipping yeah. out, out in the Atlantic, um, which, which I, had a few, I had a few close encounters with. I did run out of food 230 miles from Antigua, so I never use the word starving. You'll never hear me say starving because when you do run out, when you, when you really are starving, you won't want to be starving. It's, it's not very nice. Good character building, not, not very nice. So, um, so presumably you were prepared. I mean, you'd pl- I'm, I'm assuming the other pillars because you talked about the four, four pillars. Yeah, I, I was going to talk financial. to you about Must have been preparation as well, was it? Or planning? Or yes, how- yeah. So going back to that, actually, you've, you're right. Um, you've got these, the financial. So that's the most important. Then you've got the technical aspect. Well, because you, you've got to understand how the boat works. And um, there's no one, no one's going to come and fix anything for you when you're out in the middle of an ocean. Like my water maker broke, for example. So I had to be able, I had to fix that and repair it myself. Wow. So you've got to, you've got to spend time in the boat preparing before you go, knowing what every, you've got to be an electrician. You've got to be a plumber. You've got to be a carpenter. You've got to be able to do everything yourself. So that's a, a, a large element of the preparation is understanding what does what. Um, so diagnosing problems when you might have a problem on the boat and then uh, the you know the other pillar was was sort of you know there was a charity aspect so sort of raising money for charity i raised money for a big children's charity um and then you you know you've got the fitness aspect if i'm honest with you the fitness aspect was the lowest thing on my priority list and you might think no way how come you're trying to row a boat but the thing is, you have to look at how you spend your time. If you spend all your time messing about on a rower, yeah, you'll be the fittest guy going. But then come the start, you won't even be there because you've not raised enough money because you've neglected the most important part. Yeah. And the most important part is, is effectively trying to get the money to do it. There's three reasons why people do not pursue their dreams goals or or whatever it is that they want to do the main reason is money people say i don't have any money to do that believe it or not you can get around that i i didn't have any money to be honest with you i still don't now but you go out and you find sponsors there's always a way to raise money always the second sort of most common thing is well i don't really have the time i can't stand that everyone has time it's whether it's a priority whether you're prepared to, to put the time in. Everyone has the same amount of time. And then the third one is the skills. I don't have the skills. I don't know what I'm doing. But actually, nor did I. But if you go out there and you find people, you'll be amazed at how helpful people will be. If you don't know how to do something, but you go and find someone who does know how to do it, I guarantee you that they will probably help you. Uh, that's certainly what happened to me. So... 
Wow, yeah, it, it was a real eye. Just getting to the start line yeah. was a real eye opener. And I had, uh, but you cannot grasp rowing across to Antigua because it's you won't, you will not get your head around trying to row three thousand miles. It's too big a task. And I remember. Yeah. I was quite naive. I didn't really know what I was doing, to be honest. Well, I did to a certain extent, but sometimes being a bit naive is uh, quite useful, actually. Um, I think it's one of the biggest keys to success. I think if you are naive, you don't know what you're up against sometimes, and you can you know, break through the odds um, because you just don't know how high the odds are against you doing it. I think you're absolutely right there. Yeah, I totally and utterly agree with you. And actually, I remember... When I set off, uh, but before I set off, I spoke to a guy who'd sailed around the world a few times, and he said, "James, all you need to do is get f- through the first three days. Once you've got th- through the first three days, the rest of it will be easy." And he was so right because in the first few days, the reality hits you really hard. What you're trying to do, life at sea in a tiny little boat is not particularly comfortable initially until your body and your mind gets used to it. And so all I wanted to do was just get through the first three days. And then once I got through the first three days, I thought, well, if I can do that, I could, I can do a week. And then I did a week. And then if I'm honest with you, it all just rolled into one. Then it got to the halfway point and then all of a sudden it became real. I thought, wow, I'm actually going to do this. And I just became super motivated. Every, I didn't want to not be on that seat pulling those oars. And then I cannot, it was strange. That last day, you see people, I've heard people say, oh, you can see Antigua from 60 miles out. Well, unless you're on top of a huge cruise liner, then perhaps you can, but not when you're at sea level on a tiny little boat like mine. So I could only, I, I saw, I think I caught a glimpse of a, a red light on a radio mast and it was at night i was about 27 28 miles out now i couldn't even see land at this point um and uh, i i had this little fm radio with me and i turned it on and all of a sudden i could hear this like reggae reggae sort of caribbean music and i thought to myself wow i've done it and so i rode all the way through the night so i could arrive the following sort of afternoon and it was so strange, you know, because at that point, I didn't want it to end. I almost wanted to be out there for just another couple of days. Wow. It was strange. And did you have to, I was going to say, did you sleep at night? And what happened to the boat when you were asleep? Did it like drift if you yeah, weren't yeah, rowing? That's, that's the only way you can do it. You can't really, you can't drop a physical anchor to the bottom because it's three miles deep. Yeah. So obviously never that far from land. It's just the wrong way. Um, yeah, you just let the boats drift, basically. Uh, the, for the vast majority of the time, the winds and the currents will push the boat the way you want to go. Because if you're rowing an ocean, you can only do it with prevailing winds, with, with, with the wind and the currents that are assisting you. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, so for the most part, even if you're not rowing, the boat gets pushed along the way you want to go anyway by the winds. So yeah, I'd, I'd sort of rest at night. And I'll tell you what, once you've rowed 12 hours a day, but you don't do it nonstop. You do it in like four hour shifts and you stop and have something to eat and stuff. And I remember that, you know, you get into the little cabin, tiny little cabin at night and you put your head on the pillow and within less than a minute, you are fast asleep. I had the, I had the best sleep ever 
whilst I was out in the wow. Atlantic. And my dreams were really vivid, like really vivid, because when you're tired and you sleep well, I think you dream like really intensely. Yeah. Um, and it was great. I used to dream that I'd, I'd completed it and then I'd wake up still on the boat and think, oh, oh crikey. Oh, yeah. God. And what did you think about to get you through those darkest moments? I used to think about all the people that had got me to that start line because right. although I was the guy in the boat on my own, there was a whole team of people that had helped me, that had given me money, that had backed me, that had supported me in, in, in many different ways. And every time I just thought a bit, I felt a bit low, I, I thought of them. Wow. And it was, yeah, it was, it was like something that just clicked in my brain. Yeah. And I was, I was absolutely determined to stay out there and do it. Because I had this mindset. I thought, well, I, I'm in this massive ocean. And as long as I do one thing, and that one thing was to just keep going, as long as I don't run in circles, I'm going to get somewhere. Even if I don't end up where I want to be, I was going to get to the Caribbean somehow. Wow. Um, you know, even if I arrived at a different island, it's not ideal, but so what? I've rode to the Caribbean. Yeah. Um, no, yeah, I just got lucky. I managed to make it into Antigua, where, I, where that was where I set out to row to. Um, now, now, this is the thing. So this now that in itself, rowing across the Atlantic, was a, a fantastic achievement, and a lot of people would have been satisfied. You know, they'd done that, but not you, James. So <laughs> you've. I can. I could talk to you for ages about just that, but you yeah. also. In 2011, you went up Mount Everest, and in 2013, you cycled solo 18,000 miles around the world. Yeah. I mean, what, what happened when you got back from rowing? Were you just like immediately thinking, right, no. what's the next thing? Or you, do you, did you have a break and then think about doing something? No, no, no. I'll tell you exactly how it happened. And, and, and this is what I mean, and this is what I say to kids. When you push yourself outside of your comfort zone, that is when good things will happen for you. And I didn't set out to do anything apart from row across the Atlantic. But during my preparation to, to row across the Atlantic, I met someone who was also rowing across the Atlantic. And he happened to be a very accomplished high-altitude climber. He summited Everest uh, five times. And we just became really good mates. And he said to me, after the row, come out to Everest with me. And I thought, well, I don't know if I can do that. But, and I remember I got home after the row and he gave me a call. He said, mate, you, he, I mean, no one really calls me James. Most people call me Ketch. And his name was Rob. And he said, oh, Ketch, it's, you know, I need to know, are you coming out to Everest? Because I've got to get everything sorted out. And, and I, I don't know what it was. I just thought, well, when am I ever going to get this opportunity again? People don't realize this world is full. And I mean, full of opportunity. This is how you look at it. And it's whether you're open to it. And I thought, well, here I am. I've just rode across the Atlantic. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. And, and, it, and it gave me a huge amount of confidence. And I thought, when am I ever going to get asked to do something like this again? I will regret this for as long as I live if I don't do this. Yeah. So I decided that I was going to do it. I didn't really know. I mean, I had, as it happened, I had been out to Nepal before. I've done a bit of climbing, but only very low level stuff. Um, and I, I said, I made a commitment that I was going to do it. Um, I went back into work and I spoke to my boss, bearing in mind they'd given me a six month sabbatical. <laughs> you were still at work. 
<laughs> well, I went back to work after the row. After oh, the wow. row, I went. They, 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 my job part sponsored me. Um, my employer did. Uh, but I went back to work. And, you know, it wasn't the same though, trust me. Just sitting in that office, it just wasn't the same. It, it, it was difficult. Um, <clears throat> and I, I remember I took my boss into a meeting room and I said, listen, I need a bit more time off. And he was like, what? Um, you don't want to know what he said when I said, oh, I need some time off to go out to climb Everest. I can imagine. So I, I left my job. I, I, I left my job. And, and he was really supportive. He said, James, do it. Absolutely do it. You'll regret it if you don't. Uh, I'm still in contact with Well, I haven't spoken to him for a while. But, it, yeah, he, he, was a, he was a nice guy. Uh, Andy, his name was. Um, and, yeah, yeah, he said, leave. So I left. And... I sold everything that I owned. I moved back in with my parents, sold my race bikes. And again, I went to work trying to raise money to get out there. And again, that was harder than getting money to row across the Atlantic, believe it or not. Even though I had the credibility that I'd just rowed across the Atlantic. Well, you thought that they'd been queuing up after you'd done nah, that? No, no, no. That people will talk to you because you've got credibility. But it's, I, can't, I cannot tell you how hard it is to get funding out of. You see, I've, I never really came from a sort of an affluent, well-connected background. I was a very silly boy when I was young. I, I just I went to a normal state school. I messed about. I, didn't, I left school without one qualification. I was really, really silly when I was young. So I never really had that sort of network of contacts. And you have to go out there. You know, if you're not in a situation that you want you need to go out there and put yourself in the situation that that you want to be in so i had to go out and start building all these networks and contacts and i'd go to networking meetings and all sorts of stuff and just try and meet as many people as i could and i was always just 24 7 my life was touting for sponsorship but it, it came together in the end it came together there's a very funny story of how i got sponsored by nando's i was sponsored <laughs> by Nando's to climb Everest and it's it's true yeah it's crazy what's that story go on we, let's hear it okay so I was given um a, I was chatting to a guy on the phone um, he worked at a company called Ben Sherman right, they yeah. make shirts yeah and I was chatting to the guy for about an hour and eventually and I was getting really excited thinking oh you know this might lead to something and in the end he said look I my company can't give you any money I thought oh, great I'm just wasting an hour but he said, I do have something that I will give you, which I think could be quite useful for you. And I was like, oh, yeah, what's that? And he said, well, I have a spreadsheet that, that our company acquired recently for like marketing purposes. It's got like five, it had like 500 different CEO marketing director email addresses on it. And, it, and that's very valuable. Half the battle is, is getting the contact information to get to the right people. Right person, yeah. Um, and so that information that this guy had and was willing to give to me was like super valuable. So I said, oh, brilliant. So I emailed, I, I, he sent me this spreadsheet over and I emailed everyone on this spreadsheet. I mean, the email was pretty much the same. I just changed their name and I didn't get one reply. It was really demoralizing. And at, at this point, I'd pretty much, if I'm honest, come to the conclusion that I was probably going to have to give up on this dream because I'd really tried hard, but I just... I wasn't able to, 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 to get the funding together. And I, I didn't actually realize, but I scrolled down on the spreadsheet and there was one line that I 
I'd missed. And the last guy was a guy called Andrew who works at, uh, he was a marketing director at Nando's at the time. And I was like, oh, wow, I missed this one. I haven't emailed this one. And I thought, well, I don't even know if I can be bothered. It doesn't look like I'm going to get the money to do this. And I, I, I'm honest, I wasn't going to email him. But I, I don't know what it was. Something in my mind thought, well, if I don't send the email, nothing's going to happen. Because that's, you know, that, 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 that you can be sure of. Yeah. So I thought, well, all right, I'll send the email. So I pinged off the email. And I kid you not, half an hour later, my phone rang. And, and it was Andrew. And he said, these were his exact words. He said, listen, James, this is, this is Andrew from Nando's. I, I bloody love what you're doing. I've read the emails. It's awesome. But can I just ask you a question? Do you actually eat Nando's? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, of course I do. Every day, every, every lunchtime I go to Nando's. <laughs> but, but I can't eat lem- I can only eat lemon and herb. I can't eat anything hot. And it's like, oh, wow. So you've rode the Atlantic going out to Everest. And, and what you're telling me is you can't actually eat a hot chicken. And I said, yeah, it's true. And he's like, wow, it's, that's pretty, pretty interesting. So I had, he said, come in and have a meeting with me. So I went up and had a meeting with them. And then to cut a massively long story short, they actually, they actually became my, one of my main sponsors. And, and, and I, along with a few DHL as well and a few other people, I ended up getting the, the backing. I, but I literally had like two weeks to spare. It was, but I'll tell you what I learned. There's a couple of things that I learned from this. And that is the time that you can't be bothered to do something but you make the effort to do it, that will be the time something happens for you. Yeah. Cause I, I, and I, I, you know, people don't realize, and I see this all the time. The time when you're about to give up will literally, there will always be something just around the corner. And I see this so often people give up on things, but actually if they had pushed just a little bit harder and done just a little bit more, they were actually really, really close to making it happen. Exactly, and that's that, that's often the difference between success and failure. I mean, it, it, I know it, it's oh, yeah, obvious, absolutely. but it is, isn't it? Yeah, I've, I've been really lucky in my quest for funding. I've met a lot of very successful people, and actually, it's amazing. They're not all super intelligent people. They're just they're just determined. And what you don't see is actually when you get to know them they then tell you that they had like 10 other companies that all failed before they set this one up and it's like okay that's why you, you're here where you are because you're just just bloody persistent they're not these these people that are out there doing amazing things setting up big companies making loads of money or whatever you class as success really they're not necessarily super intelligent they're just just don't take no they just 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 don't the difference between someone who makes something happen and and someone who doesn't is just the fact that they just don't give up that's it yeah if you just don't give up and you just keep going and keep going and going by default and this is what i say to kids by default you'll get what you want or where you want to go it's just whether it's whether you've got that ability to just keep going it's how, much, it's how much you want it isn't it basically comes goes back to what i said earlier if you want something that bad yeah you'll keep going and you'll always get it you always get it yeah yeah it's, it's interesting really so you got so you did you did everest and you had something happen to you on everest i was quite ill on the way back down actually yeah i picked up quite a nasty lung infection um and i mean i was so lucky standing on top of the you see when you stood on top of the world you haven't done it at all you're, you're in fact only halfway you still got to get back down yeah now i didn't know that i had a very nasty lung infection 
uh, and it was the adrenaline, it was the excitement. It was really sort of powering me to the top. And when I got to the top and that adrenaline, that, uh, that excitement just disappeared, a feeling of sort of panic and anxiety and worry just sort of took over really. And I just, I, I, I found it very difficult to breathe. I just, I couldn't control my breathing and I needed to get back down quite you know, quickly. But you're a long way from anywhere up there. And you, you've probably heard this before, you know, if you've seen the film Everest, but you, if something goes wrong on the summit of Everest, you may as well be on the moon because no helicopter is going to come and pick you up and it would take a, a team of extraordinary strong people to drag you back down. And so if you, if you get a problem up there, you, you're, you're, you're in a real bad place. But I was quite lucky. I was able to, to move, but I just every sort of one or two steps, I had to stop to, to catch my breath. And um, effectively, I was moving too slow. I was going to run out of oxygen and, and get cold. And, but I don't know what it was. I just thought, if I keep, as long as I keep moving, I'll be okay. And my Sherpa was going crazy at me, literally just going nuts at me, telling me to move, move, move. And I understood why he was when I got back down. Mm. But that, that concept of keep moving saved my life 100%. And now, sorry, Carol. I was going to say, do you think that having developed that mental toughness and resilience in the Atlantic trip made the difference between life and death coming down Everest? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, I wouldn't even got out to Everest if it wasn't for the Atlantic. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I guess it probably did. But I just, I don't know what it was. I just knew, keep moving as long as I, if you keep moving, you'll always get somewhere. It may take a long time. And it was the Atlantic that kind of, you're right, highlighted that because mm -hmm. I wanted to get across in like 60, 70 days. And I was a bit disappointed that it took so long. And actually, when I finished, not one person said, oh, you didn't do a very good job when I told them it took so long. It was the opposite. They were like, wow, that's incredible. You're out there for that long. That's amazing. Because mm -hmm. I thought people would say, well, obviously, you weren't a very good rower my god how come you was out there for so long that's rubbish but it, that never happened and i just thought well i kept going uh, and i got across so if i keep if i as long as i keep putting one foot in front of the other um and and i thought to myself every few meters that i descend it's going to get easier the air's going to thicken up and there's more oxygen that's going to be available so it was in my, i had in my mind just keep moving keep moving and, wow. and whenever you know, people in their life are struggling because, you know, they have money problems or relationship problems or they get lots of disappointing news. And inevitably, everyone gets disappointing news. We all do. I get it. We all do. The best thing you can ever do is keep moving and just work your plan. And, and if you do that, everything you're doing will, will fall into place in the end. But what happens is a lot of people, that you know, stuff goes wrong in their life. Um, and instead of just working their plan and just stay moving, stay busy day in, day out, what actually happens is people fall off the rails and just fall apart. That's the problem. And I see that a lot. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was Everest and the road that taught me that. So. Wow. And, and then, and then 2013, another trip. Yeah. Well, I found myself in hospital when I got back from, from Everest, um, with a quite a nasty lung infection. And I, yeah, I was there for a couple of weeks and I got myself better. And I just, I don't know what it was. I, I was lying in hospital and I couldn't get this thought out of my head. And I just, I just thought to myself, 
wouldn't it be a great idea to, uh, to cycle around the world? <laughs> so, yeah, I got myself better and I cycled around the world. And, and by that point, I'd already, I'd already started doing a lot of speaking, a lot of work in, in schools and stuff. And I thought, well, I don't want to be just another British lunatic sort of fulfilling my own dreams. So I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to speak in a school in every country that I cycle through. And I managed to do that. I spoke to over 10,000 young people as I cycled around the world. So I was, I was really chuffed about that. And I was quite lucky because when I got home on the February the 1st, 2014, there wasn't much going on in the media. It just so happened to be a really quiet week. And when I got back, I set off from Greenwich Park and then arrived back into Greenwich Park. The media picked up on the fact that there's like 8 billion people on this planet and not one person has ever, well, I became the first person that's ever rode an ocean, summited Everest and cycled around the world. And it, all it is, is purely just a combination of three things. It's, it's nothing, it's not that big a deal. But the media kind of really hyped it up. And I, was, I, I, was get, I got quite lucky off the back of that, actually. They started calling it like the ultimate triathlon, this ultimate. And I felt guilty because I'm not a triathlete at all. I can't run to save my life. <laughs> I mean, no one ever questioned me. Um, but yeah, and, and sort of really at that point, I, it was funny. I never looked back. I'd fallen into a different life. I'd started speaking, got picked up by an agent. And, and now my life is totally, totally different. Um, that's what i wanted to pick up i'm going to take i'm going to come back to the the cycling but i just want to touch base on the speaking because obviously the show is for speakers so so when did you start speaking was it after everest before everest after well the first sort of talk i gave was actually before i even rode across the atlantic i told people what i wanted to do um and yeah people were very open and stuff and then when I got back from the Atlantic I started giving talks on what it was like out there um, I didn't really know I was a very good naturally I was quite a good talker because I was a sales guy and all sales guys talk, talk <laughs> crap. I just naturally talk crap anyway so uh, my ability to do that was, was fairly natural I think um, but I didn't really understand about speaking I didn't really I knew that speaking existed as a profession, but I didn't know anything about it. I didn't even know if I was any good or not. Um, but then I just kept doing more and more and more. Um, and then when I got back from Everest, I got quite lucky because I shot some really good footage. Um, so when I gave, gave my talks, all I, all I was doing was telling a story yes. from when I had the motorcycle accident. And I was lucky. I managed to get hold of all the x-rays and bits and bobs where I'd sort of been, all the pictures of the accident and, the x-rays and stuff so i would describe what that was like and what it felt like and i would talk about the recovery and then i just told the whole story about rowing across an ocean what went well what didn't go well and then i got back from everest with this amazing footage that i shot up on the summit and going up through the icefall and i got some amazing pictures and then it, i started talking about that and then all of a sudden people started started offering to pay me brilliant and i thought wow okay that's that's interesting and then i got picked up by a speaking agent and then it just kind of went from there really but to be honest i I was in the beginning i was giving lots of free talks um, just just doing it for fun i was going into schools i was going into scout groups doing it because i loved it yeah i and i had no idea that it was gonna be end up being my profession I, I did not know it just it just naturally happened 
And if you'd have said to me, like now, I'll be traveling around the world speaking, like I'm going to Stockholm next month. So that should be a nice, quite a, got a big event I'm speaking out there. Brilliant. So I'm, I, yeah, I just sort of fell into a different life, really. But well, good. I know, but you've got so much to talk about. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, we could, it's fascinating. And I think just, you know, the takeaways that you, you can, give people based on your journeys are are amazing yeah, so and and how do you prepare for your talks do you just kind of build it around the, the no, photos I, I used to yeah yeah so i didn't really know what i was doing in the beginning but now yeah you you so what i will do is you you do need to ask questions and find out well okay what's the audience type what's their age what's what is the theme of the conference because there's there's different types you know sometimes i will be asked they'll say what you talk about James really doesn't matter just come in tell some funny stories and entertain the, the guests mm-hmm. and uh, but then there'll be other times when they actually want you to come in and specifically talk about certain subjects um, you know a big thing is a big buzzword in education and even in the corporate sector is like resilience and yes. risk and things like that. So they'll, they'll say, we, you know, give your normal talk, but can you go into detail? We'd like, these are the things that we'd like you to, to, to sort of talk about, really. Yeah. So you, 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 you've got to ask questions. Um, you've got to ask what it is that, they, that they're looking to get out of it, what, 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 what kind of key messages. And when, the more you understand about the audience you're talking to, the better job uh, you can do, really. For any speaker, there's three things that you must never deviate from. You always, always think about these three things, and that is to inform, to educate, and entertain. So I think about those three things. Because I'll tell you something, there's a lot of people out there who are super knowledgeable, and they know they're incredible, and they're able to educate people. They're able to share information, but for the life of them, they just cannot entertain. Yeah. That's, that is, that's the big problem, not problem, but that's the big challenge. That doesn't mean that you can't practice and practice and get coaching and, and, exactly. and become yeah. good because nothing is impossible. If you want it enough, you'll become a good speaker. And I, you know, I, for me, I know what I'm good at and I, I'm relatively good at, I've got this knack for somehow surviving and coming home and telling stories. <laughs> it's the stories with the humor and the lessons that's learned. Yeah. That's all, that's all I do. I don't ever have any text in my, I, I mean, it depends what subject you're speaking about, but you'll never, ever, ever see a presentation of mine with text in, apart from the opening slide, which says James Ketchell. Some of the things that I've sort of done in the past is I don't really like watching myself. But actually, if I'm really honest with you, if you're an aspiring speaker, do it. Just video, get someone to video you and watch it back because you will gain quite a Even if you find it a bit cringy and you don't like looking at yourself, you will learn a lot just from watching a, a talk back. That's brilliant. Brilliant bit of advice there. Thank you. Well, I've got a couple of questions still about you just the trips and then I've got oh, some yeah. standard questions to ask. So oh, yeah, I- sure. Uh, what was this what's been the scariest moment on all of your trips was it the lung infection or was it something else no the scariest moment is something that you and i have not spoken about yet i was rescued in the uh, indian ocean back in 2015 i was trying to row from mauritius uh, sorry from western australia to mauritius which is four thousand miles of ocean it's a long way to row and it's it's a different beast to the atlantic um 
uh, yeah, effectively the boat rolled over in a large wave and my rowing partner hit his head and we, we, we had to be uh, rescued. Wow. So the scariest situation I've ever found myself in was climbing up the side of a 100,000 ton crude oil tanker up on a tiny little rope ladder it was like 60 foot up to the deck you, you you cannot grasp how big those things are until one comes up right beside you and you're in a tiny little boat and you've got to climb up onto the deck and you're getting smashed up and down with the waves um and you've got to somehow jump from your little boat onto a rope ladder and then climb up that that was but it's not scary at the time nothing's scary at the time because you're focused and you're concentrating but when you look back, you think, oh, that was very dangerous. One false move, one slip there, and that would have been me totally dead. Wow, that's so amazing. That was, that was quite scary. Okay, but. cool. Brilliant. I've got one more, one more question for you on sort of the resilience side of things. So you've done, you've done these tremendous things. You, you know, they're calling it the ultimate triathlon. You speak you know, now all over the world. One of the things that people struggle with in life is comparing themselves to other people. Right, never, ever do that thoughts do you still do that and if you do how do you manage it absolutely not the worst thing you can do is compare yourself to other people if you're comparing yourself to other people you are wasting your time because the people that you're comparing yourself to will not be comparing themselves to you or anyone else so but don't get me wrong do look perhaps at what some people are, are doing to a certain extent i you know, there are speakers on this planet who are out there making millions of pounds. So, you know, I do look at what they're saying. I think, well, hang about. If you're, if you're out there doing all this, earning all this money, what is it that you're actually saying? So don't get me wrong. Do look at what people at the top of their, your game, uh, you know, uh, are trying, are doing. But aside from that, I don't compare myself to anyone. The, the worst thing you can ever do is that. Compare yourself to yourself. The only competition you, you should have is with yourself. Can you push yourself hard? Can you, can you get up an hour earlier every day? Can you go to bed an hour later every day and do a little bit more of what it is that you're trying to do? So to answer your question, the word, but this personal, this is just opinions. Some, yeah. Someone may listen to this and say, what a load of rubbish. I totally disagree. <laughs> they could, and they're well within their right to but for me and my opinion the worst thing you can do is ever compare yourself to other people and i'll tell you why on this planet there is always and always always going to be someone bigger better got more money looks like they got more lucky than you there's always going to be someone doing better or someone that can beat you at whatever it is that you do but there'll also be many people that won't ever be able to do what you're doing or be as good as you is there's always going to be better there's always going to be worse uh so that that's my advice do not waste your time comparing yourself to other people the worst thing you can ever do brilliant thank you and i have just thought of one one more related question uh, trip question yeah sure of all of the things that you've done what is the one memory one thing that will stick with you most on those trips of from one of the trips there's so many but one of the memories that will always stick with me will be rowing into antigua english okay. harbor after nearly four months of my own at sea and seeing people for the first time I, I actually it just it happened to be antigua race week when i 
rode in. So there was hundreds of rich Americans everywhere racing their yachts around the island. And yeah, I'll never forget that feeling. It was a feeling that I would struggle to articulate to someone. Yeah. Uh, imagine working on something for years and years and years. It's all you ever thought about, you're obsessed with. And all of a sudden it comes true. That's what it feels like. Brilliant. So I think the only feeling that I could have now for the rest of my life that might come close to that feeling is if I ever have kids or something, perhaps that, that, that feeling might come close to it. But uh, yeah, uh, um, yeah, I'll never forget that. Actually, I'll tell you what was a good feeling was writing my book and then getting the first copy. Yeah. Was, oh, and what's your book called, James? Well, bizarrely, it's called The Ultimate Triathlon. I, Excellent. Which I didn't really, I, there's a funny story to that. I actually wanted to call it It's All Mental because I believe that everything you do is in your mind. Yeah. And, and this is the thing I say to people. I tell you what, if I can do what I have managed to do, there's no reason why anyone else out there can't do what they want to do. Because I tell you, I am not a smart man. I'm really not not particularly academic whatsoever i'm not a smart guy and if i can do what i've done there is no reason other people out there can't do what they, they want to do there's, there's no shadow of a doubt okay right i've got some standard questions for you yeah go for it what's the best thing speaking's ever done for you uh giving me confidence but i could there's lots of different answers for that is it's enabled me to earn money. It's enabled me to travel the world. It's enabled me to meet great people. There's, there's quite a few answers to that, if that makes sense. No, that, that does. It's a big, brings some big opportunities. Huge, huge opportunities. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Okay. And then what's the, have you had a bad gig? Can, is, there any, is there any sort of speaking gig where you thought, oh my God, did no, something can, happen? Not, I've never had anything bad, but I can tell you something that happened to me actually quite recently. I was at an event, a big charity event, where I had to auction off. A it, was a, it was a trip that I, I had going on, and they asked me to auction it off. And so I got up in a room, about 500 people. Now, all these people were completely drunk. It was at the end of the night. And they said, you know, the, the, the guy that was emceeing the event, I, I did say to him beforehand, you know, these people are not going to know who I am because they're <laughs> drunk. They're not going to have read the brochure. So I can't really stand up and say, hey, guys, I've done all this, this, and this, because I would look a dickhead. So <laughs> I said to the MC, if you don't mind saying to the guys before I come on, now James is coming on and he's done this, this, and this, to build a picture of sort of who I am. Yeah. I said, that would really help me. And he went, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. And of course, I get up on stage. He doesn't do it. He just says, and now James is going to come on stage to talk to you about this. So there, there's me in front of like 500 people. And I have to sell this kind of event. Now, I tried to do a pretty good job. I felt like I did a pretty good job of it. But I kid you not, I had like probably three quarters of the audience just staring at me thinking, who the hell is this lunatic? What, <laughs> what has this got to do with the event? It was... It wasn't bad. It would just it just felt a little bit awkward. Oh, um, so that's the worst thing that's ever happened to me. I've never had anything bad happen. I've had some really. I've had people ask me really embarrassing personal questions. Uh, oh, but like? uh, uh, you're a guy. You're a you're a you're a youngish guy who's clearly going to have lots of testosterone. How do you? 
uh, what, how do you entertain yourself uh, whilst out in the Atlantic? You know, w- w- without me sort of being explicit, you know, um, all sorts of things like that, really, yeah. all sorts of crazy questions. And, uh, you know, uh, but to be honest with you, I just threw it back and I answered them and was, and they were like, and they, they, they thought they were being funny, but they were blown away when I just really openly answered all the questions. And everyone was like, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> I remember that was funny. Um, Excellent. But I, to be honest with you, I'm quite lucky. I've never had any real bad experiences. Um, so, but who knows? Maybe that could happen. But I'm it, sure not. I'm sure not. I'm sure. No, I'm sure not. You too much. You got too much going on, James. No, no problems. Right. Okay. My last. My last question is: There's a book called "Think and Grow Rich" by a guy called Napoleon Hill, and he. Uh, I know that, that very well. Ah, good. So he created this sort of mastermind concept and he had like people from history and all sorts that he would sort of in his mind run ideas past. He was employed by a guy called Andrew Carnegie. Exactly. Uh, Exactly that. He interviewed over 500 different people. He did. It's it's an amazing book. But the question I've got for you is, if you could have anyone alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, to be uh, three of your mentors mentors who would you choose and why oh my goodness that is quite tough if i'm honest um well i uh, here's uh, the first one i can tell you um i thought about christopher columbus and those old real old sort of navigators of years ago yeah when i was out in the atlantic so let's say i'd have christopher columbus as he, he would be a good person brilliant um i i have a newfound fascination for flying now I got my pilot's license last year, so oh, wow. I would probably have the Wright brothers, although cool. that's kind of two people, but let's just, yeah, I'd have the Wright brothers. Uh, and there needs to be someone who's a real sort of business mind. Oh, um, oh, I tell you who I'm a big fan of, and he, he really is a pretty awesome guy, and, and, and I do quite like Elon Musk. He, he's doing some pretty cool stuff. Yes. So I think Elon Musk would be a pretty good mentor. So I'd have, I'd have, I'd have, I'd have the Wright brothers because they persevered and they persevered. Now I'll tell you who I would have as well is Thomas Edison. Now you've read Napoleon Hill's book and he talks extensively about uh, Thomas Edison and how he conducted tens of thousands of experiments before he invented the the light bulb and and the bits and bobs that he did. Uh, So he would be a good person to have. I will let you have four just because you are, you've been so generous. You, I just want to say, James, thank you. I mean, so much for everything that you've shared today. And um, before I, I let you know, how can people uh, find out more about you and get hold of the book, The Ultimate Triathlon? Where, whereabouts can I mean, I'll put a link to the show yeah, notes, but could you tell people? Yeah, so um, you can find out more information on my website, which is jamesketchell.net. I also have a YouTube channel. So if you just type my name into, into YouTube, I try to upload content uh, every couple of days. And I talk about various things that I've learned. And I, I, I do a mix of vlogging. Um, the other day, I made a video on how to, to get expedition funding, which went down quite well. Wow. So much so that I actually have to make another one, which goes into much more depth brilliant brilliant well thank you again so much for your time and for all the amazing tips that you've you've it's been a real pleasure what a brilliant bloke how inspirational was that it really does all come down to how much you want it 
how you manage the negative thoughts and how determined you are to keep going when things get tough. I took a lot away from this episode for me personally. Um, You're going to use some of that uh, thinking to get through some of the challenges that I face in my business quite often. But yeah, go and check out James online, buy his book. And if you can, go and see him speak. And thanks to Richard Parsons for suggesting James as a guest for the show. I hope you all enjoyed the show and it helps you achieve your big goals as a speaker in business or in your life. Thank you so much for listening as ever. I really appreciate you giving your ears to me for the time that we're together. And if you can leave a rating or review, if you enjoy the show, if you find it valuable, wherever you're listening, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher, or even leave a comment on the website, that would be amazing. I would be really grateful. It really helps other people find the show. And subscribe so you don't miss out on other great episodes to come. Remember, you've got this. Have a brilliant week and go and grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. If you want to discover how to create a killer pitch that makes you or your business stand out from the crowd, then you'll want to grab your copy of my book straight to the top. It will help you clarify your USP, your business story, who your target market is and what will make them buy. You'll discover how to get the edge on the competition and position your offer for success. You'll also get proven elevator and investor pitch frameworks to use for maximum impact. To get the book for free plus lots of extra bonuses, you just pay shipping and handling, go to standoutpitch.com today.